0: The Pilbara Killing by Sabine T. Shetlam as read by Andrews Barr. This material is subject to copyright. Prologue The attendant counted out the numbers in a sing-song voice stopping at the eighth gate. He pulled the tray onto the roller heading and brought her out with a final clunk for her complete reveal. There was then that unpleasant business of the two men physically having to lift her from the tray to the table for the serious part. She was frail and gangly like a museum doll, were it not for the hypostatic pooled blood along her back and thighs that memorised the place and the way that she had been found. Atwood smoothed her hair as a parent might, making her look nice for the cameras and turning her head in stiff opposition underscoring the chainmail link of deep impressions on her neck. Lower down she had been torn at, the only sign of becalmed neatness, the tying together of her polished toes with a triple loop round of twine. Edward half knelt in mocking gesture as he always did at the start of these things. The preliminary post-mortem prayer a hangover seared into his brain by the call of some european theater of dissection that had absolved its criminals who had centuries ago been anatomized in the public places squares such as these from them it was a cleaning and redemptive ritual for souls traveling from one unknown history to the next but it was still something that in this set of circumstances still degenerated into a spectacle. Edward was not religious, nor was it something many other, any other coroner would do, just the compulsiveness of habitual superstition. He didn't really need the jerky reminder of the child in order to solemnify things. The wailing of her mother was blaring from the nightly news in the next room. He turned back towards his task and got on with what he was paid for holding the knife as surgeons do with the stem of the handle cupped into his palm and with his fingers splayed out straight across the hub connecting the blade. He dragged the incision from the root of the neck across the front of her chest around the breast and down towards its junction with the abdomen in one swift and powerful cut down to the bone. And then the same thing along the other side. She was thin and the flaps opened her up like a triptych. He took a power tool and ran it through the rib margins, which yielded like brushling saplings might to a chainsaw. The chest wall lifted off as one piece, and he flipped it towards himself like a kinder surprise. In any such examination, transecting the trachea below its inlet into the larynx, it is so remarkably easy to eviscerate someone. The heart and lungs and all the intestine come away from their moorings, and one can just pull out a human being from its cavities like ripping off an ear of corn from the husk. A complete person extracted in one fell swoop. The rest of this one would just be the opening up of the stomach and sifting through all that soup, stashing away vials for toxin measurement, deciding about the last meal and such. The DC waiting around for an interim finding was not about to look at it any more. And he made his excuses and his thank yous. He'd had enough and could feel the insistent spasms of and nausea bearing upon him. Almost 88 hours before, oldies had found the dead the Aboriginal girl in the bush on a nature walk. Oldies were often doing that sort of thing, nature walking and running over stuff with metal detectors finding occult treasures and triumphantly holding them aloft to the ums and the ahs of the gob-struck onlookers. But there she was, unhidden, in plain sight for all and sundry to find, a careless and inattentive death. <coughs> there may too have been neither rhyme nor reason why one person or another is ever singled out to manage such a case, just dumb or bad luck is all, and this time it was Zimmerman's turn even if the whys and wherefores that placed him there had been designed at the very start to set him up. Atwood would have known nothing about it, although he could have guessed. For now, in his ignorance, it was just one curt call in the middle of the night to Zimmerman from a superior he had never met but heard about. The sound of the phone chimed in with the the tonal alarm that he had received in the email scan of a police report from the poor unknowing bastard first on the scene. The brief, bleak, interrupting messages had forced him at the most ungodly hour to catch the earliest flight to Broome and pick up the rental for the solid drive inland to Parbidou. Just another of those little communities so far from one another, often a half day's full drive that are enough to exhaust even the bravest travellers parched from too much sun beating hard on too much dusted road to care about its name or its place within the shire. Each with its trusted warm and friendly greeting from some isolated townsfolk drawn in kinship on its entrance plate. Here at its front door, one might say, to learn by a sudden sudden passing flash of its 938 people at last count, and its regional claim to fame as the friendless village east of Broome and home to the largest Goanna this side of the Black Stump. And in this one place, on its tin sheeted greeting and the bold, cursive blocks of the graffiti artists, writ large and fully covering its official lettering, a welcoming fuck you, creatively topped with an emphatic exclamation point and adorned with a little smiley face. Nice touch. Chapter 1 He had answered the call immediately without disturbing any of the desk clutter, his hand moving seamlessly amongst the books and the rings, the watch and the papers. Gripping straight onto the receiver, Zimmerman looked at the clock which lately seemed redundant. For the last year there was never a morning that he did not wake at some outrageous hour, well prior to the serviceable call of its alarm. His insomnia had not relented, despite all the pills and the mindfulness tapes. It was 3.37am, and the air outside was a deep, rich black, stilled and windless like a stagnant tarpaul. He put on his wire frames, pushing the sleep crust off of his eyes, with a long, hard rub adjusting to the outside gloom. The cloud covered everything except the one tinsel pick of Venus, the evening star which flashed defiantly in the night sky. Nowadays he had a sweet, gentle, almost politically correct nature that he had assiduously worked upon. A year ago he would have gruffed it out or even growled down the line, frightening the caller and incurring some ridiculous report that he would have to fend off in the light of day in front of some idiot who hadn't the slightest understanding of his responsibilities. You could imagine the sterile manager who could never possibly have fathomed his anger rifling through some file or other in a committee meeting set up a month from now just for the purpose. That sort of thing would have wrapped him up hopelessly in responses and the officialdom of their replies for months. For God's sake, over whether a DI had growled at a public servant th- at 3.37 in the morning. Nowadays he knew better. And he rolled over on his back, smiling at the interruption like he was a happy puppy, waiting for a tummy tickle. As happy as Larry. After graduating from the Academy, Aidan Zimmerman had taken his degree in forensics, and the dual qualification made him a marketable commodity. He'd only been with the Western Australian forensics team for the last fourteen months, focusing his lectures on the mechanics of ballistics to a group of Perth police cadets who most of the time seemed pretty bored with what they had been repeatedly told was the special privilege of working in law enforcement. Ahead of that, seconded to the Venice Carabinieri for two years, learning about crime scene investigation and attending one inspiring course, The Motivations of the Serial Killer, under the watchful eyes of its director, Signor Castiglione. Zimmerman's was a technical and mathematical expertise, concerning itself with the yaw and rotations of missiles, the reaming of bullet casings and the filing of pistols. When put that way, it sounded far more exciting than it was, and most of the time was a pretty mundane business, calculating the weight of expended shells or shooting bullets across water balloons into pig hides, trying to line up the marks made in the casings gouged out by their pressure on the firing pins. Perhaps to the uninitiated it might have appeared so precise that it was often rather hit and miss, literally, and its science was not really all that exact. He callously thought about those instances where it had been pretty airtight, maybe in court convicting some poor fucker who carried the same type of weapon as had been used in a robbery or a murder, and then in conning some young impressionable cadet at a local party into bed holding her attention to a more enthralling version of his humdrum lifestyle with a bit of work banter. In his younger years, at least, some of them might have fallen for his bullshit lines and milled around him with the faux excitement, and at one time, when it was new, his ballistic spiel had been a proverbial leg-opener. he had turned up with this reputation to the station and had personally protected its braggadocio legacy, even when it was far and away no longer fashionable to do so, if only to stop the other coppers from taking the piss out of him for being Jewish. He knew too that he was no DNA expert, and these days that meant that he was often trumped by what he called the molecular cops, not only in the cases he was invited to testify at, but also in his pulling power. Even today there were still a number of receptive girls who seemed sufficiently animated by a wanker with access to a gene-sequencing laboratory, capable of slapping a paternity charge on some hapless prick, if needs be. The deprecating graffiti which decorated the entrance to the town was readily visible from the part of the Western Highway, which led straight down towards the premier hotel, the Parbadou Shanty House. All of the original letters on the plate had been glossed over, making it appear almost officially sanctioned, like a committee might have been appro- might have approved of it, if executive elders interested in the ministrations of such a shit heap could be imagined, it was the sort of place where civic pride was at a rock bottom, and so they'd left it all alone like that for almost eighteen months, seemingly the least amount of time that places like this could ever be galvanised into any sort of affirmative action. Jesus, this place is such a dung hole," he said aloud as he drove through Parbidou's centre. The rental's aircon was on the blink and it was hot enough that he had the window down with his arm trailing outside. An old lady in the street heard him mouth off as he was stopped at a small speed hump. She was wheeling a trolley replete with groceries across the blip in the road and she pulled up and turned around to give him a glare. What is it, he said. A cigarette melted and adhered against his lower lip. The pronunciation of the sharp consonants spliced off a small shard of ash onto his new white shirt and he looked down at it, mouthing a soundless fuck. The woman was dressed in a buttoned-up blouse with a lace collar trimming sweetly finished at the neck and she turned to him demurely and told him, "'Fuck you too!' as audible as if she were in a stockyard. He smiled and thought that the graffiti artists had insinuated themselves into the vernacular right nicely." It seemed to be the greeting of the day around these parts. His mind wandered back to the girl and his task, abandoned in the remotest Pilbara town, its own place of abandonment. There were some country corners like this one, so small that they needed the cavalry called in. No real experience of killings or how to handle them up here then. A little harsh reality in a harsher land, to have their nose rubbed in it and to be reminded that they most likely couldn't cope and were obliged to hand it over to the experts down south, like some egregious baton in a foul relay race. It might have been one thing to cordon off the area and square it with yellow police tape, somehow imagining that such a simple act would sterilise it from wanton contamination and all the unpleasant destruction that may have made the solving of the case near impossible. It was quite another to actually expect that instituting the most basic of protocols might have ensured that all the evidence would be preserved in some useful manner and handled up here with the professionalism that it deserved. This is not to say that he could assume that this little hamlet was some corner of corruption or ineptitude, but rather that things this far north of civilization were just missed as often as not, and that in such a place... The enthusiasm to resolve the death of some nameless or faceless little aboriginal girl would not have been particularly high. Nothing in his years at the university had prepared him for his task today. Certainly not that single session with the WAPF counsellors on grief and death. It had all been woefully inadequate. All they had spouted was something that somebody had read from that Kubler-Ross woman about some stages he couldn't remember. He pulled open the glove compartment and a load of junk fell out, a registered Glock 22.4 calibre semi-automatic firearm, a pair of Safflock handcuffs. He made a mental note. he really shouldn't have them in here, even if they had never been in his experience, any need to grab them, either of them, for an emergency. At the back, there was a small pamphlet on grief counselling with a series of bullet points that he pulled out and that tore off as it freed itself from the rest of the mess in the glove box. It came as no surprise that the least experienced of the force should be charged with the task of meeting the relatives and breaking the news to them. No doubt he thought some arse with epaulets and pips was sitting in his office with a glass of sipping whiskey in his hand, going on and on about the trials of being a deputy commissioner and the great responsibility he had over any field worker. He often would talk aloud to himself almost without realising. Yeah, that's right. Why the fuck don't you come down over here and do it yourself then? Friendliness and prejudice were both more naked here, and he knew that he might not be particularly welcome no matter what his demeanour. The black and white families in places like these generally had nothing to do with one another, even when the website showed them together in the happiest embrace. There were plenty of them around in the town, all right, but few of the Aborigines lived in the structured dwellings and the built-up parts, and most opted for their small humpies and their makeshift lean-tos on the outskirts of town and much farther beyond. No boundary or barrier between their home and their land, hard-etched with its storied rocks, the stiff coarseness of the spinifex and the drenching mood of their spirit lakes but these are not things their white neighbours would have cared much about. The Parbidou Shanty House had its own website. When he arrived, it seemed that both were under construction, and it was somewhat difficult to see, given the nature of the place, why one would have been much advantaged by the other. The front wire screen was partially off, and Zimmerman sorted up to the counter, pretending in a place where everyone already knew everyone else, to appear like a local... He slapped away the flies with a regularity from his right and left, like a metronome. The lady behind the strip of balsa wood that separated the customers from the staff raised her eyebrows as the only effort she might have made to inquire what it was that anyone wanted, and with a beer in her hand and with the bar set already so low, it seemed natural for her to ask him what the fuck he wanted. I've come about the dead girl, he blurted. Oh, and by the by, preening a little. I'm an inspector from the WAF. Picking uh, and adding this seemingly as an entry coder. He knew around these parts that if he introduced himself as a D.I. Zimmerman, they wouldn't like it. Oh yeah, we've been waiting for you. She seemed unimpressed. The Matu is at the clinic since we don't have a hospital. The doctor's there now and he wants to get rid of her. She drew a small map from a soft pencil to... "'show where the clinic was located some eight kilometres away "'and close to a large landmark baobab tree. "'It won't be quite that simple,' he replied. "'I'll need to see where they found her and before that interview her family.' "'Good luck with that, love,' she snorted. "'It was the first and only time she'd expressed some non-specific friendliness. "'Walking out, she swivelled around and belatedly asked him for some identification.' Zimmerman wrestled with his pockets to bring out his badge and laminated staff card and whilst he was fiddling with them wrapped up in gum and cigarette papers he asked her what a matu was. You've obviously got a bit to learn, honey. She seemed a little friendlier now that she had found out what a rube he was and after he was confirming his status. Zimmerman, eh? she said. Are you a yib then? And she sneered again, raising the edge of her lip like a snarling hound. As for me to know and you to find out.' He offered the quick comeback as though he'd been practising the line for years. Zimmerman's simple comeback line had proven handy in those country towns and he'd used it before travelling to Broome two months previous with Chief Rowe. that time they'd investigated the death of a small Aboriginal boy who had washed up on Cable Beach and whom the local police had imagined would interest the Metropolitan Force.' But it just turned out that the poor kid had been stung by a box jellyfish, panicked off the headland and drowned. Simply too tired to swim back to safety after the most unfortunate sting. Zimmerman seemed distracted thinking about that last triumph when she pulled him back from his reverie. The matu of those abos of the great sandy desert. It means one of us and the wanker lingo. But thank Christ it really means one of them, eh? Who knows, anyhow, they have so many languages up there. No doubt one bong can't understand the other. That's why they kill each other, isn't it? She looked around for a collective racist sympathy and some of the truckies nodded approvingly. Anyhow, they roams the whole Pilbara, she said, like she was being interviewed for some hillbilly documentary. They're as far up as Jigalong and Lake Disappointment. Even Zimmerman knew where that was. Hadn't some explorer followed all those rivulets, expecting to discover a reservoir lake, but only to find a dried-up, salty crust bed. Better should have been called Lake Pissed Off than he thought. One old man at the end of the plank looked up with a beer in his hand and chimed in. They know where the water is, he said, smiling and flashing a row of neglected teeth. They know the local artesian bores, that's for sure. When driven cattle came there... Here, just after we federalised, they they, they were tortured for that info. He said, after which he went back looking disconsolately into his beer like there was some hidden prize at the bottom of the glass. The proprietress finally formally introduced herself. Mrs Joanne Parmenter, she proudly beamed like it should mean something around these parts. Call me Jo, she said. It was just time to insert her two bobs worth. Oh yeah, the natives were chained to the trees for that. The baobab you'll be passing has a small plaque. We may be cruel, but we can still commemorate. Now she laughs, as did the others. If it was her joke, it was all right. Zimmerman raised a smirk, maybe to feel a little more at home. There's that rabbit-proof fence that runs past Jigalong too, said the old lady who had sneered at him outside and who had come in for a quiet beer. The cottontail wall, longer than that one in China, and I bet you can see ours from outer space. Now they all laughed and sighed as though they might have preferred old times when the Matu knew their place. A full-blood Aboriginal man next to the old one smiled a handsome wide grin and tried to straddle both the past and the present like it was nothing. He clutched tightly at his beer, reflecting silently on a time when he couldn't even get served. Now just one of the crowd elected them on their separation and, changing the subject, piped up over the noisy laughter. You know that my old dad had never even seen a white man until his teens. He knew they were around from his ancestors. They were in the stories, and the first time he saw one was when they shoved him out of his home at Maralinga, just before they blew up those atom bombs, you remember? They all nodded, recalling how the British government had tested their nuclear weaponry just after the war in the remotest part of the empire, as if somehow when it was all queen and country it was a better time. And then the full-blood tugged at a makeshift forelock and he doffed an invisible hat. Imagine just letting off an H without telling anyone, he said. They told us, blackfellow, don't be look at the light and roll your sleeves down. But we got none to roll. Christ Zimmerman thought to himself, what a dump. And he grinned broadly, thinking it still looked a little like the epicentre of a nuclear attack. The sun was setting down and it had been a long day with travel and all. He decided to catch up the following morning with the local constabulary, one Senior Sergeant Paul curvis and then the doctor whom they all called the German. He called Dr Messner who angrily argued with him over why he was not coming out that evening. Zimmerman tried to explain the tribulations of his day's travels but Messner had no interest. He told him that it necessitated that he stay in his clinic in a bunk bed until morning with the body in the procedural room, keeping guard so that it wouldn't be taken. No one in her family, he explained, was keen about the autopsy cutting her up. He screamed his righteous displeasure over the line as Zimmerman claimed a faulty connection and hung up. Now in his last beer, he watched the iridescent reds and ambers, as the sunset spread itself out like a melted cheese across the monotony of the flatlands, he laid the half beer aside lest he smell too much of alcohol, as it was time to see the girl's family. The space between the land and the sky merged, and as he left his valise with Joe, she gave him an envelope. Constable M. Curvis, the town's head policeman, had left for him. She reminded him that drinking was permitted in the room, but should he feel sick, the management preferred it if patrons could vomit outside. It seemed a not unreasonable request, and he said that he would try his best to comply. There was no escaping it, his duty. He'd driven almost all day and could not shirk the mission now. The sour notes of any job can overwhelm its proudest moments, and he knew that he was not good at the telling at taking families aside and shouldering their grief. How often had he seen a little body, threshed at or bloated with the weight of water, plunged senseless under a depth of temporary concealment, only to surface and be found by some hapless bastard totally unprepared for the experience. He was unschooled at the counselling and consoling and the listening bits, and he knew it. It wasn't in his blood. And he would lapse into long silences and mesmeric stares whilst those around him dismantled and then recollected themselves under the weight of tragic news. Some of it could wait until morning.